Hey guys, welcome back to VS Energy's BMS podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Ferry, and here with us today is Mark Sankey, Rich Fish, and Nick Taliska. So this is, if you listen to our previous episode, the same crew that talked about chillers. And this is just a in addition to that conversation dedicated to absorption chillers. And, and we felt this topic was really worth its own episode. I think we could talk for about this for quite a long time. So we'll try to keep it in our, our normal time length range. And uh, hopefully it's insightful for you guys. As I said, this discussion, this episode is all about absorption chillers. And I know in our last episode, um, Mark gave us a little bit of insight on what an absorption chiller is and the science behind it. But I think we should pick up right there for this discussion. So, you know, any of you gentlemen want to dive in and say, but let's, what is an absorption chiller and kind of how it works at a 10,000 foot level? Oh, I have a hard time staying at 10,000 feet. You know, bring it in then. Yeah. Right Right to the nitty gritty. So it's, it's a, it's a box of magic, right? Heat goes in, cold goes out. That's I'll give Nick credit to that one. Oh, it's, it's chemical thermodynamics. Uh, instead of, you know, mechanical refrigeration, it's chemical. Right. right. Like that. Chemical thermodynamics. I mean, the absorption chiller uses a physical or chemical process to provide vacuum and desiccant based phase change, phase change being the centerpiece of any refrigeration process to provide cooling. Basically, it sucks up ther- thermal energy during the phase change of the refrigerant and rejects it to the cooling tower via the cycle. Now, I can go through the cycle now, or you want me to wait, or what's your thought, Clayton? I like what Rich was saying. I'm sorry about the the, the chemical thermodynamics right. versus mechanical. Yeah, which is the cycle, really, right? Yep. We'll go back a little, back up just a little bit too, and talk about uh, where did it come from? Yes, uh, where did these come? I from? was surprised to find out that that absorption cooling cycle was invented in 1858. Wow. I have no idea it was that long ago. And it, I, I think uh, from what I read, it became you know commercially viable in the early 1920s. That's and, impressive. You know, the, the absorption cooling was very, very uh, prevalent on shipboard, especially military ships, because they produced so much heat, you know, especially think back to steam-powered engines basically you put a boiler together right and then uh you fired those boilers at high pressure steam and they they put they drove the propeller shafts via a steam engine so plenty of heat not a lot of electricity and it was a perfect application you know for military and passenger ships where now we want to keep people comfortable we want to provide ice for their drinks we want to do all those things and uh, the absorption chillers were were really the ticket for that. So I think in this in for the listeners, I'll probably end up putting like a YouTube link on you know the absorption chiller cycle because you know when you look at the the diagram or whatever you want to call it, there is a lot going on. So maybe Mark, if you don't mind, I guess go through a little bit of the or all of the the science behind it what's happening you got your condenser generator evaporator absorber there's a whole lot of different pipes with a whole lot of different colors 
flowing <laughs> through it. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's intimidating when you look at it to start. Right. Because there's a lot going on. And um, maybe we can break that down a little bit. I'll put a YouTube link in it. So if you want to see what it looks like, I'll give you guys a good video as well. But, Here's a trivia question too, Clayton. We'll see if you know the answer to this one. Oh, man. What's the most widely used application of absorption chillers? I'm going to say um, refrigerators in mobile homes. Uh, you nailed it. <laughs> you <laughs> did your research. <laughs> this guy is good. <laughs> Look at that. I had, well, you know, I know it's funny. I, um, I got lucky on that one. I, I was a, that was an educated guess. But I just learned that couple of weeks ago or last week or whatever when mark was saying his uh his refrigerator on his camper was a was an absorber and i was like no way that just seems yeah. like so much stuff in there you know for a, a camper refrigerator i don't know i th- beautiful about it i thought yeah. it was the same as your you know your mini fridge in your garage as a camper but oh, no, it, it, it it you know the People think that when they plug it in, yeah. when you plug it in, all that's doing is changing the heat source to the concentrator section that boils the water back out of the lithium bromide. So instead of a flame underneath the absorber, I mean, uh, the concentrator, you have a electric heating element. So there's not a whole separate refrigeration circuit. It's just an right. alternate heat source. Just switches the heat source. Right. Well, so Mark, take us through what's happening in that box there in your camper. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing I wanted to mention historically, because again, I, I found out so many cool things historically when I started reading up. Albert Einstein actually, with a former student of his, created what he called the Einstein refrigerator to be used as an intermittent absorption cooler for vaccines. You could basically set it over a campfire and it could be used to keep vaccines cool in third world countries while they were administering the vaccines to the to the kids. That's insane. See, wow, and that's no, why that's I read trivia. I didn't know. No. I read some of the similar applications, and there's some, you know, some serious scientific journals and studies that are going on with this same thing where, you know, Mark, I know you're a enthusiast as you say of magnetically levitated uh compressors and chiller technology and all that but you know that the future i think as far as being able to help people yeah it's, it's just an amazing thing to think about rich as you were saying is camping in with this uh absorption chiller on your back or on wheels that you just need a little bit of heat in your yeah pres- i mean all these vaccines they need refrigeration and different all kinds of medicines and if you don't have reliable and uh quality electricity you know for a standard mechanical or vapor compression cycle then yeah these things are wild anyways i digress yes (laughs) let's let's let mark get back to explaining the chemical thermodynamic process oh everybody's so curious now absolutely go mark okay so Absorption chillers, we both talk about, we, we talked about both ammonia and water lithium bromide chillers. It's important to differentiate that in an absorption chiller, water, within a lithium bromide chiller, water is the refrigerant, refrigerant, lithium bromide is the desiccant. In an ammonia chiller, ammonia is the refrigerant and water is the absorbent. 
in both cases, the chiller is under vacuum to reduce the boiling point of the refrigerant to a suitable level for HVAC or process cooling. So starting on the chilled water production side of the cycle, in the evaporator section, liquid refrigerant sprayed over the evaporation section, heat's removed from the evap, causing the refrigerant to evaporate in the change to the, that's our refrigerant phase change. Inside the same housing containing the evaporator is the absorber chamber where concentrated absorbent solution is sprayed across the condenser heat exchanger surface, depressing the temperature for the refrigerant to be absorbed by the absorbent, whether it's lithium bromide or uh, water. So now we have diluted low concentration absorbent and we need to drive that water, drive the, the refrigerant back out of the absorbent to make it usable back in the concentrator section. So it's pumped up to the concentrator where we drive the refrigerant out using our heat. That's the purpose of the heat addition to the absorption chiller is to provide concentrated absorbent. So, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever used a desiccant in your gun cabinets or something like that, and it changes color from blue to pink. And when you, it turns pink, you put the, uh, you plug it in and it yeah. drives the, the water back out of that desiccant. That's what we're doing. We're, yep. re, okay. we're reconcentrating that desiccant so that we can reduce the, uh, we can increase the rate and the level at which refrigerant is absorbed by it. So once the heat's driven out of the concentrator section, um, heat's driven out, uh, I'm sorry, refrigerant's driven out in the concentrator section, separates the low concentration absorption fluid into vapor and concentrated desiccant. The concentrator desiccant goes down to a reservoir where it returns to the evaporator section via the uh, spray pump and the refrigerant vapor migrates to the condenser section where it's returned to liquid phase goes into a reservoir that controls our cooling rate and then we're back to the beginning where now we have our concentrated uh, desiccant and our liquid phase refrigerant and we can go back and spray it into the evap section and we're back to repeating the cycle of course it's a continuous cycle but that's how it works and in a in a multi uh, stage or dual effect absorber, we go through two concentration cycles to more effectively provide highly concentrated desiccant and further depress the boiling point or uh, flash point of the refrigerant and get a more efficient machine. Basically, we recover some heat and use it to further concentrate the desiccant. Well, that was simple. Yeah. Yeah, when you break there's it down like that, lot going on, you're 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 right, Clayton. Looking at the diagrams, there, there is there's a lot going lot. on. There is, but when they're assembled well, tested well, started up well, they'll run. But uh, most, and from my experience, most of the problems with absorbers. I mean, let's let's take it right from the beginning. Lithium bromide is an extremely corrosive substance. So there are always materials of construction issues that you have to, you know, the designer obviously has to worry about. And then the second part of it is there's a relatively uh, 
thin base of highly skilled absorption technicians. And, you know, a, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. And many of the uh, absorption chiller failures that I've seen are largely self-inflicted wounds. I'd have to agree that the, the big failures I've seen were from people maintaining and operating machines that didn't know what they were doing and usually end up running the machine into crystallization and basically turning all that lithium bromide into rock. Yeah. We talked about it in the last podcast. When you go to see an old absorber and the paint is burned off in multiple locations, it means that the only way you can get that stuff back to liquid is by heating it with a acetylene torch or high heat source. And when you see an absorber that has the paint burned off in multiple locations, uh, it's had some rough, rough times in its life. So, and I, I apologize. Maybe I was just a little hypnotized by watching my little animation of it, how an absorption chiller works. But um, <laughs> how do you, like, what did they do wrong to get to that point? I mean, shouldn't you just be able to connect? As long as you have flow on all of your, your hot water, your chilled water, and your cooling tower, shouldn't internally it just do its job? If the machine's not loaded correctly, uh, the temperatures get too cold, and that uh, thermodynamic process isn't happening, the yeah. concentration of the of the lithium bromide becomes uh, too great. That's when it starts to turn solid. So you're saying, like, like in a normal vapor compression chiller, like if I did something wrong on my condenser water, the chiller would eventually just not shut off, right, or whatever on pressure but this usually with the absorbers you'll know from the sound yeah <laughs> uh, if you're around that it's starting to crystallize because it makes the hell of a racket when yeah it's doing that so so yeah. generally like you're a lot safer with a your standard vapor compression chiller though because it's just going to stop it's not going to crystallize and die right well i i would say with modern uh, chillers, that's true, but I, I mean, I can't tell you how many chillers I've seen that have gone through motor burnouts, completely contaminated the um, the whole machine. Yeah, that's true. Burned up, mm -hmm. you know, insulation yeah. and acid and so on. So it's just a different form of failures. And what you find is a predominant cause in absorption chillers is a leak. So when we have a leak with a refrigeration chiller, you're going to get a refrigerant leak detector that goes off. There might mm -hmm. be some visible leakage with an absorption chiller. It's leaking in because the chillers are under vacuum. Mm -hmm. So you may not know it. And in an effort to keep providing concentrated desiccant, the, the absorber generally tries to add more heat and boil off more water. But unless it's under vacuum, they can't produce enough cooling and consequently that highly constant, very highly concentrated desiccant turns into what sounds like uh, gravel going through the uh, concentrator pump. And that's the, that's the early warning that you, you are destined for a big issue. So <laughs> many absorbers have continued or they have either continuous or intermittent uh, vacuum pumps attached to them to make sure that, they're continuously under vacuum. Now, if you have a big leak, that vacuum pump won't keep yeah, up. Yeah, it's not going to get you there. The end, right? Okay. Yeah, a lot of the technology now on those machines is designed to prevent that. Right. Um, machines that were, you know, being put in 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 
certainly didn't have the technology or the the microprocessor control built into it that the machines have today that are you know safeties are there to protect from that happening yeah that's true like when i was comparing uh vapor compression just shutting off to an absorber kind of run itself to ground i was it was apples to oranges i guess as mark said because you know i was thinking more of the the modern chiller that can see these irregularities and protect itself rather than the old way i guess where it didn't so mark um i may be you can correct me if i'm wrong here i know the uh the lithium bromide process is a negative pressure that's a a vacuum when it's ammonia i actually thought that was a positive pressure uh, i think you're right rich now that you say that you're correct so leaks on an ammonia uh uh, absor- absorber obviously would ammonia leak is out. toxic. Yeah, you would have to you would have to have monitoring for ammonia just for the safety of uh, people in the space. You are correct, and actually, um, you know, the only applications I see anymore for ammonia are still, you know, flash freezing, all that good stuff that uh, requires very low temperatures. Yeah, it's it's primarily industrial right. and. Um, uh, like you said, flash freezing, food storage, and that kind of stuff. So we all know absorption chillers now are, and if you didn't know, hopefully, if you're listening on to this point, they're they're basically driven by a heat source, right? Um, I think it's, when I was doing my research, I thought it was interesting, you know, my only view of absorption chillers was you you connected hot water to it, right? From a water jacket, from Cogen, anything like that. You needed hot water. But it, as we were discussing, that's not necessarily the case all the time. You can do direct fired, um, like a uh, camper, I don't know, refrigerator oh, would work, right? And oh, I thought yeah, it was even, even some- There's uh, big commercial units. Yeah, yeah, yeah commercial yeah. units that are gas fired. Well, that's what I thought was interesting. And same with um, just like direct exhaust gas, like- Absorption chillers can run off of just hot gas, hot gas from the hot gas. Yeah. yeah. Which is, I don't know. I found that extremely interesting. Like you take away another intermediate heat transfer phase, if you want to call it that of the hot water, you just put direct heat right to the thing and it'll run commercially. The five different types of heat sources that I've seen in absorbers over the years. And one of them really is a combination, but, uh, hot water, mm-hmm. obviously, steam, mm-hmm. direct fired, and hot exhaust gas. And then on the hot water side, too, um, solar. So you're basically using solar arrays to make the hot water instead of using, you know, other energy to make the hot water like steam or, you know, whatever you're using electric mm-hmm. to create the hot water. Golly. So, you know, there, there's a lot of different... You know, different ways that you can provide the heat source for an absorber. But it, but it is uh, important to recognize that as you reduce the entering temperature, I mean, some have a limit as low as 180 degrees, but that is really the lower operating okay. limit. Mm-hmm. As you reduce that inlet temperature, the ability to provide concentrated uh, desiccant goes down. So, your COP, which is already at a uh, not a very good level, is further further depressed. Really want to be up to the 220, 240 or above before you can say, okay, I have a good application for a 
absorber. And it's got to be consistent to 2240 or, or, you know, right. 180, whatever you want to call it. Like, I don't know. Whatever the number is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the commercial buildings or, or institutions that we typically are working with BMS control of chilled water plants and stuff, the, the application for absorbers is really only economically sensible when there is a waste heat source. Yes. Right. Because otherwise they're like Mark said, their coefficient of performance is, is so low compared to vapor compression, uh, mechanical chillers that, that just, uh, the energy that doesn't make sense. I mean, other things that drive it are obviously if you're in a situation where noise is an issue, absorbers are way quieter than centrifugal machines. Right. If electrical power stability is an issue, uh, absorbers are far less reliant on uh, electrical power, so then they become a good choice. So the the applications that you know, we would typically see that we're going to be dealing with putting you know BMS controls on an overall plant are going to be fairly limited compared to you know where we see mechanical chilling. Now, can we talk about those entering water temperatures? Because I thought I read some things with today's technology that you could. You say, you know, down to 130 degrees. But Mark, your, your, your Ooh, quality. I haven't seen one. It was a, quite a bit I would believe there. that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, it's like I said, this is. I, I'm not, I, I haven't read that. So um, I, I'm just going based on my experience. And actually, I, we've seen chillers be removed because 180 degrees wouldn't keep them online. Really? Yep. You were there. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so uh, just to take a step back, not not specific to absorbers at all, but for people who may not know what COP is, the coefficient of performance, that's the ratio of useful energy, in this case cooling, divided by the energy input. Okay? So just a quick comparison, all right? Uh, air-cooled DX machine, maybe two to three for a coefficient of performance. For mm -hmm. every BTU you put in, you get three BTUs out. Water-cooled screw chiller, uh, five, maybe five and a half. Mm -hmm. Water-cooled conventional centrifugal. So this is not a, a magnetically levitated, you know, or anything like that. Be five to six. And a mag-bearing water-cooled centrifugal, uh, better than 10. So a water-cooled single-effect absorption chiller with design entering quality heat, maybe 220 to 240, COP is 0.7. So for every BTU you get, you put in, you get 70% of that out in cooling. And double-effect, maybe we get to 1.1. So pure energy perspective, again, this isn't cost, reliability, just pure right. energy. Uh, an absorber is... 10 to 20% as efficient as a modern mag bearing chiller. Which sounds just completely horrible. But when you talk about, like you said, that the cost of energy. Right. You, you, you could be, you it, could argue that it's cheaper than to Well, there's all the on, variables that go into it. If you yeah. get into a demand response situation where, okay, you know, real time pricing is in effect. You have a huge price change coming up based on the total grid load mm -hmm. it's time to fire the absorber, uh, take your electric machines offline. And 
those all by themselves sometimes make the difference between economic viability and not. So when you say fire the absorber, um, I have to imagine this is like a, a big freaking flywheel though. Like you can't just turn it on, right? I don't know. I've never turned on an absorber, but I have to imagine it takes a little bit of time for the chemistry to start going. You got to get obviously your hot water or heat source up to temp. And then like when you hit the go button, I don't know. Does it just start? It just goes? If your heat's available, uh, it'll go. Really? If your heat's available, immediately it'll start. I mean, it's just like putting a frying pan on the oven, right? Mm -hmm. On the stove. You put the heat to it, evaporation starts. So maybe, like, maybe I'm thinking about this way too much, but, like, what if I don't want to run my absorber, but I have my heat source, like, I have my hot water doing its thing. Like, do you, can you not have hot water running through it when you don't want to use it? Because it'll like naturally do its thing in there or well so think about what's happening we have a desiccant that's sitting in the mm -hmm. in the uh absorber its static state its natural state is to be fully saturated so it's not going to rock up all the water will migrate into the desiccant ah that's true so so now we have a, a absolutely weak solution mm -hmm. so the the time constant that you're talking about is we need to get the concentration to the point where it will facilitate evaporation of the refrigerant in the evaporator section. So our first process is, okay, let's start concentrating the desiccant. So it, it's basically can sit forever until you're ready to run it. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Well, I mean, like I said, absorption chillers, I'm, I don't have a lot of um, experience with, so I was just asking questions just to get a feel for how they are, what they do. <laughs> well, it's interesting, Clinton, because that's the, you know, when Mark, you were talking about the COP, and I think that's one of the big misconceptions yeah. about absorption cooling that it really, not all, and then we, then we also talk, well, they're great if you have free heat. And that's not entirely true or even mostly true from, from what I'm reading too and understanding uh, going back, but it's that, it comes down to the dollars and that that price differential between electricity and your heat source. So that's exactly what it those, is. Those when I think back on absorption chillers and the negative, you know, side of it, it's been you know the the one, first thing that Rich brought up the crystallization issue, and then you know the COP just uh, based on energy out versus energy in type of metrics. So I think that's a fallacy that may be changing here. What do you think about that statement? Well, I think that's true. I mean, when you look at what's happening in the United States, just look at the utility grid limitations. When you have rolling brownouts, all right, wh why is that? Is it because there's insufficient generation capacity? Generally not. It's because there's insufficient distribution capacity. So if you have a, a grid that's distribution constrained, and this is where distributed generation and or deployment comes out. It may be economically viable. There may be utility incentives to say, okay, if you can shed, pick a number, three quarters of a megawatt a load by dropping out 1500 tons of chiller and firing an absorber, it makes it much more economically viable. And 
so just again, we go back to okay, our chiller is two times uh, 20%, our absorber is 20% efficient as a mag bearing chiller or a, a standard chiller. So if we have a five to one ratio between thermal energy and electric energy, which isn't that implausible based on current uh, fossil fuel prices and based on current electric prices in many scenarios, if you have more than a five to one ratio between those two fuel costs, then the absorption chiller wins. I feel like maybe I'm just thinking crazy because obviously you need a massive generator, but maybe like, couldn't you just say, if that's the case, I'm just going to burn, use natural gas to fire a generator to power my chiller then. Isn't it opposed to having a, having a uh, absorber and a, uh, you know, vapor compression chiller and using the absorber to shed load? Or is that crazy to think? Well, then you're creating in that particular case some energy when you're running a a gas turbine that could actually be used as your heat source for an absorption chiller. If, If you guys will indulge me for a few minutes here, I'll tell a story about Uh, something that ties directly into what Mark says, a project that um, I got involved with back in the late 1990s in Southern California is a a large printing company uh, printed high quality uh, stuff like, you know, the books that you see for uh, cars, you know, that real high gloss, very high quality printing. And being in Los Angeles with the power quality issues there, frequent brownouts would cause all of their equipment to shut down. And every time their equipment, you know, which was all computer controlled shut down, their unscheduled shutdowns cost them something in the neighborhood of like $40,000 an hour. And because every time they'd have that shutdown, they'd have to clean the presses. They'd have to restart their process. So they developed uh, a project that I got to be involved in from the beginning uh, to put in their own small uh, power generating plant, a combined cycle plant that was not very big. It was only a five megawatt plant, but they had a, a three, 3.1 megawatt gas fired turbine that produced uh, electricity that would be used by their plant as well as under California's, I think it was standard offer four, the utility company had to buy back at uh, the going rate, all the electricity excess that was made by their, their plant. Then that hot gas coming off of that turbine went into a heat recovery water wall boiler that made high pressure steam. The high pressure steam then went into a steam turbine generator that generated another 1.9 megawatts to to come to the whole five megawatt total capacity. The rejection port off of that steam turbine basically was low Mm -hmm. pressure steam, which then was used for absorption chillers, steam fired absorption chillers to provide cooling for their printing press area, which previously had just been whatever the environmental conditions outside air was. They, in addition, had, because of being in Southern California, issues with uh, air pollution credits. And obviously, in a printing factory where there's all these inks and things being used, there's a lot of fugitive emissions. 
and those pollution credits, um, Mark, I'm sure you're aware of this, they have a dollar value on the market because there's only so much pollution allowed to be created in, in you know, Los mm-hmm. Angeles yeah, area. And yeah, and anybody that, you know, uh, they're paying for these credits on the open market, you can basically sell those credits off to somebody else. So we basically put a exhaust system onto the printing factory to capture all the fugitive emissions, bring the building under negative pressure, take the discharge of that exhaust into the intake of the gas-fired turbine. So all those fugitive emissions were being collected, basically injected into the intake air of the gas-fired turbine, burned in the turbine along with the gas fuel. So they got all their pollution credits back because they were creating no fugitive emissions anymore. Everything was getting burned. They went from having these unscheduled downtimes, which cost them money, and paying an electric bill basically per month to getting a check from the electric company in the neighborhood of $38,000 a month. And I can't remember what dollar value they got to, but what the steam that was left over that wasn't used by the absorbers was basically sold to a laundromat across the street. So it was an exceptionally cool project that, you know, it was a perfect application for an absorption chiller because there was all that Mm -hmm. waste heat available because of another problem that they solved by putting in the little combined cycle power plant. That is a great story. And really illustrates, I think, the fact why absorber technology, in my opinion, is just on the rise. I mean, you look at uh, Japan has exponential growth in uh, the, the uh, adoption of, of absorption chilling technology, and uh, it hasn't quite taken off. I think and seen the resurgence here, but you know, the world is looking to get rid of heat, right? When you go back go back to what Mark was saying about our power grid being inadequate, you see more and more facilities, campuses, uh, universities, hospitals looking at putting in their own combined heat and power plants to get off of that issue of, you know, having the rolling brownouts or, you know, having, you know, inconsistent power. And if they can basically generate their own electricity using a low-cost fossil fuel, I mean, uh, uh, right now, uh, natural gas, with all of the uh, production we have in this country, we've got a glut of natural gas, Mark. I'm sure <laughs> being a, another person that you know has a gas lease for Marcellus Shale, you've seen the value of your checks go down because the cost, uh, you know, the sell price of the right. gas has gone down. Yeah, but it's like the infrastructure for gas available still i mean i feel like that's still pretty weak for natural gas i guess i mean like Uh, where you guys are everywhere i assume because you're just saturated in it but um you know i I don't know i'm just asking questions like yeah we could say our, our electric grid is maybe weak and undersized but i don't know gas can't be that easy you can't just say oh gas is everywhere at right 
Well, uh, I, that will lead us into a political discussion. Guys, <laughs> we probably don't need that in this podcast. No, I, I mean, <laughs> we live in an area of the country where how far away are we from each other? Four hour drive. Yeah. Which uh, basically. Mm -hmm. um, two different worlds. Yeah, two different worlds. Um, but that said, uh, your home state is importing natural gas and tankers yeah i we don't need to get political <laughs> right so I'm, just, uh, I'm just telling you it's not because it's not available or it couldn't be available yeah yep it's yep. a whole different discussion yep no but you're you're right clayton that obviously the natural gas pipeline infrastructure is as big a part of that resource's reliability as and, well and the only reason i don't know that it plays a role, but like you, you mentioned Japan, right? I mean, I have no idea what energy costs in Japan, but I'm assuming a big reason they're doing absorption chilling is because electricity is probably really expensive or highly regulated or whatever, right? Oh, it all, yeah, it all come, from what I understand, it all comes down to the economics yeah. and does. They're not looking at COP necessarily. Right. They're uh, not trying to save the world, maybe. They're just doing what's cheapest. Well, they're, they're probably their their bigger problem is probably being able to produce enough electricity on that small yeah. island for the the growth mm -hmm. of industry as well as population <laughs> this is true okay back to absorption chillers <laughs> um can i just clarify something from my understanding because so the the big difference here is that so technically we're talking about you know vapor absorption cycle versus what we all know as a vapor compression cycle. Mm -hmm. So where the, where the compressor really helps to bring about that phase change, right? Yes, it does. By compressing the, ref the refrigerant with absorption cooling, going back to what Rich said, it's that chemical uh, transformation, right? With the refrigerant and an absorbent that increases the pressure of the refrigerant mm. without the vapor without the mechanical compression going on without a, a compressor hooked up. I know you need the heat source. I mean, they're being termed as thermally driven chillers a lot and not just absorption chillers, but same principle, but yeah, we're right. That's the, the, the heat's well, causing the phase change. Yeah, you have a, a compressor. Correct. You, I mean, it boils down to, uh, you know, absorption chillers typically, are there's a lot more complex construction to them but there's a it's a lot more simplistic mechanically because there's very very little moving parts associated with an absorption chiller it's basically just a couple right. of pumps i would um, point out more difficult to explain too which is <laughs> interesting you know so that, and rich that brings up a really good point or a new topic of discussion for me like absorption chillers like say i don't know i have I need a thousand tons of cooling, right? And the footprint of my standard mag bearing vapor compression chiller, probably pretty small, right? Is it the same for an absorption chiller? Uh, typically, the for a, a thousand ton absorption chiller, you're looking at a, a different footprint. Much larger. Much usually, larger. Yeah, it's usually Yeah, okay, much so larger. I was wondering that too, which is interesting. Well, I mean, I guess it makes sense in a way. I'd, I never... Another another experience that 
I was lucky to have, which was uh, in the uh, late 1980s. And Mark, you got to see it too during your time with Boltec, but uh, a large campus plant, essentially a uh, 9,000 ton plant where they had two 1,500 ton uh, dual source uh, absorption chillers that could run off of hot water when they were making hot water or could mm-hmm. run off of gas. And then six 1,000 ton uh, typical mm-hmm. centrifugal machines. The space that one of those 1,500 ton machines took up, you could have easily stuck two of those 1,000 ton centrifugals. So, okay. It, yeah, it's pretty big then, comparatively. Yeah, they're, they're, they're large. But, you know, going back to what Rich said, and, and um, I think following on to what Nick's saying, if you go to most, pick up, you know, university campuses are um, generally very good applications for central hot water, chill water, mm-hmm. steam chill water plants. And almost, I would say more than half uh, have some form of absorber on them, maybe as a, and when I say form, I, I should, maybe that's the wrong word, application. Either it's a base load machine or it's a swing load machine or multiple applications because there is a, a you know, relatively large amount of either high temperature condensate or excess steam capacity, which once you get to a certain threshold, you run pretty high efficiencies on your steam boilers and it's easy to strip off either um, condensate heat or uh, actual steam heat to be able to drive those absorbers in lieu of paying for you know incrementally large demand charges and consumption charges for electricity and back to sizing and footprint and all that i believe your your cooling towers change substantially oh that's a good point yep why are they much larger so it comes back to the cop of the machine oh because we're rejecting we're rejecting a lot more 80 percent of the heat out yeah i get it yep which is something that i would have not off to that's a great point nick i i didn't even put those into the picture yet and that's a huge part of it i mean you got to have the real estate for that as well which probably is you know i don't know how much bigger it is if it's twice the size you know i don't know how much bigger your cooling towers and system would need to be but you know it's all good all goes into consideration i've seen some numbers that you know come close to you know 175 percent larger yeah you know I, almost times. Uh, so i don't think you'll see a lot of swaps swap outs of you know existing vapor compression chillers for, yeah <laughs> you you can't really to keep it yeah it's historically it's been going the other way <laughs> usually see swap outs of absorbers being taken out and centrifugal or, or you know electric machines so being put in we didn't really talk specifically about this yet i know we, we we made some points in some locations but where do you like just to list them out where do you generally see absorption chillers existing we talked about um campuses um some some industry yeah any any but any 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 application for a combined heat and power plant, mm-hmm. cogen plant, where you have all that waste heat, um, any place that has inadequate electrical infrastructure, high electric costs, mm-hmm. um, excess process heat. When you get into the industrial world where there's heat being generated by their processes that they're 
going to normally just reject uh, into the atmosphere can be used to make mm-hmm. processed cooling or yep. environmental cooling yep. via absorption. And just like high electricity costs could be a driver, really suppressed or depressed natural gas prices could be a driver for putting that in sometimes uh, with volatility, yep. you know, and maintaining some flexibility. That's where you might see, I've seen a lot of absorbers in hospital settings and not necessarily because they were capturing heat, but it was more of that flexibility and, uh, you know, hedging their operating costs in essence. But the last two absorbers I get involved in, one was a similar application to Rich printing plant, but they actually had to capture VOCs already uh, and put it through a reactive thermal oxidizer, which is basically a full-time exhaust system that incinerates VOCs with a very high discharge temperature and recovered that heat to drive an absorber. Now, it wasn't, I would say it was a... Uh, marginal application because it was in an environment where they didn't need heat uh, i'm sorry cooling uh 12 months out of the year but because it was absolutely free uh it it made economic sense the other one was Mm -hmm. a pulp and paper mill where they used scrap wood as one of their fuel sources and basically that steam was almost 100% 100% free. They made 600 PSI steam and uh, they just, you know, pulled off another 600 PSI line PRV and um, put in an absorber. And we actually tried to uh, have them put in a steam turbine instead of the PRV, but they had already cut a deal with the local utility company not to self generate and couldn't do it. Hmm. So, um, well, you guys are talking. I kind of tuned you out. I apologize, but <laughs> what a I was um, I was doing my well because I, I I had a thought about absorption chillers. You know, one of my research, I saw this. Like, I think, and you you I know Mark has his own opinions on some things too. But like lead, you know, like lead credits. So you can do a lead, whatever, gold, silver, bronze building. Um, using no CFC refrigerants. You know, the the world is not the world, but, you know, that's that's on the radar, uh, ozone depletion and refrigerant and all that stuff. So I think that's another maybe it's not a huge pushing point for absorption chillers. But um, I think as our, our world starts to look for green alternatives, absorption chillers, you know, some light starts to get shed on them, too. Okay, so uh, let me let me I'm, I'm going to ask us a really simple question. So if I put in a machine that has a COP of 10, that means you get 10 times more usable energy than what you put into it. How can it be more green than than a machine that has a COP of one? You're thinking about this like an engineer now. It's a very interesting uh, discussion. You're right. A lot of people can get kind of twisted around talking about well, look about look at the uh, the environmental impact of the early electric cars, the batteries in the early electric cars, and how environmentally toxic mm-hmm. those things were. And everybody's like, "Oh, I'm green. I'm driving yeah. an electric car." And yeah, you got 250 pounds of 
uh, toxic waste, yeah. basically, that's sitting in there that you're going to have to dispose of at some point. Well, you know, we as a country develop by wasting unbelievable amounts of energy. Um, if you ever looked at a steam locomotive, all right, that's probably the least efficient, efficient uh, transportation method that has ever existed. That was a burn your fuel put your water into the boiler, the water comes out, you know, and goes, it, it, there's no condensate return. So at every fueling station, and if you ever, you know, watch an old Western, you see the big water tower with the, uh, yeah. with the nozzle on it. Okay. You could have plenty of fuel, but if you run out of water, that thing's not moving. Yep. So, I mean, a hundred percent waste and, you know, some amount was obviously, directed to moving things you know, mm -hmm. along the train tracks, but it was once and done. There was no, how much does this cost to operate economies being, you know, made, you had a big force draft fan on that thing. So when they opened the throttle, all the black smoke is, you know, spewing out along with uh, waste steam and Hey, it's a, it was not very efficient, but uh, it made economic sense. That's a great point. It is. It all comes down to a balance. Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. I think we did a good job kind of outlining that balance, though, in this conversation. I mean, obviously, we understand where absorption chillers can really um, thrive. Um, and other times, you know, you can't just look at it as a face value on COP or a face value on, you know, uh, I don't know, you electric and gas costs there's a lot of factors that come into it too so it's a dynamic like, well like everything like everything yeah you know? yeah and i'd like to clarify that piece about uh japan here looking at my notes it's also china and korea have seen exponential growth really? since the 70s too which i think is interesting mm -hmm. so i'm sure electric reliability could explain some of that but maybe just a different way of evaluating you know, what works. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess, I guess if you have the waste heat too, obviously it's a drives you down that route um, a lot easier. So actually that's a good uh, lead in for my next thought, Nick. Um, China, Japan uh, are all developing rank and cycle generators for commercial use. And actually uh, some U.S. manufacturers are starting to distribute Pacific Rim Rankin cycle generators, which basically would displace or uh, use the same kinds of heat sources that you would for an absorption chiller uh, to produce electricity. So there hmm. becomes another option for, okay, what do we want to do if we don't have the viability to put in an absorption chiller and maybe all of our load is in air conditioning, but it's, um, you know, other electric loads, then the Rankin cycle becomes, but, and again, the efficiencies are in the same range as the uh, absorption chiller, 70 to, you know, 70% to one at the top end based on the quality of heat. But uh, if it's waste heat and you can find a way to re-inject that back into the process on the electric grid, that's another option. Well, would you care to, for our listeners who may not be as uh, expertly knowledgeable of the Rankin cycle, exactly what that is? Well, think about a single stage steam turbine, right? We produce steam, put it through a turbine, and 
that turns a, a generator and makes electricity. So the Rankine cycle basis, basically uses an organic fluid. It can be refrigerant, toluene, uh, any number of working fluids, which boil at a lower temperature. And, and by adding that heat to the um, working fluid, we create vapor. Vapor drives the turbine, goes to the condenser. So there's a heat source and a condenser source. Usually water cool is more efficient you get lower condenser temperatures, therefore a larger pressure drop across the turbine and more efficiency. Uh, it can be air-cooled, but that reduces your efficiency overall. And, you know, it's a, it's a closed loop. Uh, there's no uh, loss of, of working fluid. So that's what makes our electricity. Excellent. To uh, further expound a little bit about what Mark was talking about with the Rankine cycle. When you talk about a, a combined cycle power generator, there's two, the Rankine, which Mark mentioned, which is often called the bottoming cycle, and then the Brayton cycle, which is typically your gas turbine or your top cycle. I think we need our own, an episode dedicated to these. So it, it was interesting, Rich, you know, we've, I've done some work with one of the local um, midstream companies and we did a fair amount of modeling for them for uh, rank and cycle generator applications for their compressor stations to be able to take out uh, exhaust heat and uh, put it through a, a heat recovery heater for the organic fluid and just couldn't make it work. Uh, from an economic, because we here in Western PA also have relatively low electric prices, which Critical are related cost. to our uh, relatively low fossil fuel prices. That, bring, that actually, I was just going to bring up a question about this, not really to rank and cycle, but uh, absorption chillers too. Like cost premium, is that much higher? I mean, again, you can't really say it, the payback's all dependent on, you know, uh, utility costs, but like, if I, I don't know, if I was stuck in the middle and cost was one of the driving factors, like what does, what does an absorber look like compared to your, I don't know, standard centrifugal chiller, you know? I think it varies a lot based on the uh, size mm -hmm. or, or capacity that you want. Out no, no, yeah. And I guess I agree with that. I don't, yeah. Like ton for ton or, you know, is a cost premium? Is there a premium on it? Or are they cheaper? I don't know. Like if I wanted a 250 ton machine and I was going to say, do I want an absorption chiller or I want a, you know, mag bearing centrifugal, what's cheaper? I think on a 250 ton, you're, you're probably going to find an, an absorption chiller uh, to be cheaper. But when you get, start getting into mm -hmm. the bigger ones, you know, thousand, fifteen hundred. I, I think the biggest absorption chiller that you can get is 3000 ton. Uh, I think they get considerably more expensive when you get into the bigger ones. Has that been your experience? It, it is. I mean, and it's all, as everything scales up, the, the, the heat exchanger vessels, yeah, you know, the, there are, and I, I didn't go through them in detail in the description I gave, but there are some fairly large heat exchangers that do some internal economization on the, uh, especially, uh, double effect machines, all that stuff scales up and they're clearly, they would not be present on a, uh, on a centrifugal machine. And, right. you know, especially you get into the, 
uh, uh, Nick gets tired of hearing this, but as you get into the mag bearings where all they are, are 300, 350 ton compressors mm -hmm. stacked on top of a couple of tubes, they can be pretty cost effective. I never get tired of hearing about magnetic levitation, Mark. <laughs> Cool. But when you do talk about the economics, and maybe I'm a little bit fascinated by this this growth of absorption cooling on the Asian continent. But when you when you think about if you're going to build a new, you know, electrically driven chiller plant versus absorption, you're looking at other things too, right? With the electrical gear and the transformer and the wires and the footprint, you know, required for that. That. Mm -hmm. A lot of this absorption technology, I think you can do like a, some simultaneous heating and cooling as well. You can, yeah. Which adds a whole different flavor to oh, putting in a chiller plant plus a boiler plant. You are uh, absolutely right. I didn't even oof, didn't even cover that. What a horrible host I am. <laughs> didn't cover the, what? Simultaneously, like if you put in like exhaust heat, you can make hot and cold water to an absorption chiller. Oh yeah. yeah, well yeah, this surfaced with the cogen talk and tri generation and all yeah. that, and definitely you know move towards these these packaged self contained. It's just impressive what you can do with them. I I can't disagree that. I'm telling you, I'm amazed because Rich. I mean, I told you this before that the only thing I heard, you know, when I was coming up in the industry was, oh, absorptions are difficult. One, nobody can explain yeah. how it works into oh they crystallize and then you just gotta run so <laughs> that's all i heard so everybody poo pooed yep. it but it's fascinating you know so i think i told you before about you know being asked you know as an energy engineer you know how do absorbers work i just always made a joke of it because i didn't want to get into it because i didn't really fully understand all of it but then when i was doing some of my pre-show research probably the same stuff rich was looking at about the history there's an ad from Consolidated Gas from, you know, looks like the 1920s or something. And uh, it's a picture of this wizard looking guy and he's holding up this giant ice cube, you know, puzzled. Like, how did this happen? And he's got a full <laughs> cube, like giant ice, crave, ice cubes in front of him. And it says there's no magic about gas refrigeration. But I still think it is. <laughs> Just looking at a March... Uh, news story, global absorption chillers industry. The absorption chillers market worldwide is projected to grow by 230 million, driven by a compounded growth of 4%. Wow. That's something to keep an eye on for a lot of different reasons. But I think all of, we, we touched on briefly the value. Uh, so, okay. In my uh gross analysis the cop of 0.7 or one of an absorption chiller if you look at that on the surface that's the deal killer but i think what what we've all just identified is all of the synergies that you can obtain by having an absorption chiller on a site or on a campus uh, every time you use a waste heat stream, it goes from higher quality to lower quality. So mm -hmm. you take heat into the absorber and it comes out, okay, and we put in 240 degree water, it comes out at 200. That 200 degree water is still usable yeah. by your heat exchangers to heat the building. So every time we take a Delta T on what initially was, you know, maybe reasonably cost thermal energy, that 
increases the overall efficiency of our central plant system. So my, my mantra has always been the cheapest BTU is the one you already paid for. So if you can use it again or use more of it, then everybody wins. And the, the absorption chiller in that kind of scenario, it, it plays a pivotal role. I think that's a great point, yep. Mark. And there's a school of thought too that says, you know, when we look at COP compared between these technologies, it's not that absorbers are so much worse COP wise, it's that COP is being calculated incorrectly for absorption technology. And it needs to be looked at a little bit differently because I, I agree with you. It is a, it could be a primary deal killer in a lot of aspects. Yeah, people look at that when they divide the input power to the output, whatever, and input energy versus output energy, they don't take into account that the input energy already did its, potentially did its job and was paid for. Right. Yeah. And plus the magic that happens inside, some people can't get past that <laughs> either. I think you've all done an excellent job of helping people understand here yeah. what really goes on. Well, and to, but to that extent, they're, I, I assume they're, like we talked about, they're pretty self-sufficient now, though. I mean, if you give it the hot water it needs, it'll make the cold water it needs. And as long as it's got a place to reject the heat, it'll just do its job. Well, And, you, and, you and a very that. simplified explanation, but... And the cooling towers are not always the deciding factor because many central plants are located on a heat sink like a river. And oh, this is true. You know, river water heat exchangers and those kinds of things to be able to, you know, provide their cooling at a reduced cost. The, mm -hmm. the original designers of most of those central plants were pretty bright boys or girls, and uh, they cited things where utilities were cost effective. Mm -hmm. One of the uh, projects I worked on over in Asia at the uh, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, their power plant for the whole university was built basically down on the shore and the heat rejection shore source was Hong Kong Bay. Oh. They basically rejected all heat from mechanical cooling right back into the bay. It's beautiful. Yeah. Really yeah. is. Other than what all that heat does yeah. to the flora and fauna that, that live in the bay or in the rivers, I know I, as a fisherman, I used to always love to fish around the power plant outflows, especially in the fall and early winter, because the fish all came. <laughs> you just park your boat at the outflow where that warm water was and the fish were there. Still do. Absolutely. <laughs> no, you're right. There is a balance of that. It's uh, obviously, well, and the environmental impact is a huge part of it these days. Yeah, absolutely. We're getting smarter about recognizing what those impacts are too. And well, it's this is a tangential or sidebar. Um, Cornell University put in a plant uh, that uses the deep uh, water of Cayuga Lake. Uh, Cayuga Lake has sturgeon in it. It has, you know, uh, it's a very pristine environment. But basically. Uh, I mean, I, I, the number of 20,000 tons comes into my mind. I mean, I just looked at an article uh, that said they saved 20 million kilowatt hours a year. By, by doing what again, Mark, from Cayuga Lake, which for anybody is one of the great finger lakes of upstate New York? They have a deep water 
supply return loop that provides uh, water to a heat exchanger mounted at the south end of the lake, and then they pipe all the way up to the campus uh, their chilled water. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, that one of the deepest lakes up there, but certainly gets cold. Oh, yeah. Too bad Lake Bakayal is in the middle of Siberia because that would be a, a, <laughs> an excellent place. It's what, what was it, the deep, uh, the largest freshwater lake by volume in the world and holds better than 20% of the world's fresh right. surface wow. water? Wow. No way. This is Siberia? Yeah. I think it's uh, average depth is about 2,500 feet with a max depth of over 5,000 feet. Isn't that just how it goes, though? They probably don't need a lot of mechanical refrigeration. Probably there. not. Not in Siberia. I think no. that was one of the lakes. I think they built a Trans-Siberian Railroad over that. They used a ferry to... to and then it froze correct. so much that they couldn't break the ice to, to get across, so it stopped. I don't know. That, that's completely sidebar, but I don't know why I thought of that. I believe that, and I'm going to repeat it. There later it is. This There's a little bit of trivia for anybody listening. The things I learned yeah, here. This is an educational podcast, Nick. Why else would we do it? Of <laughs> course. Yeah, we're luring these people in under the guise of BMS, and we're educating them on everything else but BMS. <laughs> well, but they're think, all tan they're all tangentially connected. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Energy, you can, environment, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. You know, you can draw a line back to absorption chillers for all of this conversation. So, you know, I think we're good. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, a good uh, control system is critical to using any kind of mechanical or chemical chilling in a plant capacity. Yeah. Boom. There it is. There well, it is. and we, ju we just talked about how uh, energy dashboards are starting to play a larger and larger role. So if you especially are using a central plant, you know, the absorption chiller would be a centerpiece or a part of that strategy mm -hmm. uh, based on either fixed or real-time pricing and uh, what your chilled water loads were, et cetera. And, uh, it would all show up It all knit together in the BMS and the, and or the BMS and the energy dashboard. I think you rightfully placed absorption cooling as the centerpiece. Absorption is the future. One, one last, one last little cool experience it was involved with a little project at Carnegie Mellon university. Um, they had essentially a lab, situation set up they called the workplace of the future and uh, there were some tenured professors that were in charge of it but they had a lot of grad students you know working on their phds that were involved in the projects but they did a little miniature basically setup uh, to get combined heating and cooling out of a solar array they weren't really they weren't doing power generation they were basically making hot water with the solar array using it uh in a like about i think it was about a 200 ton absorption chiller that would looked like the size of your your home furnace you know home gas fired furnace basically fit wow. in a closet and uh they you know in the winter the, the uh, array would make the hot water they used for heating in the summer the hot water it made was used for that absorption chiller to make the cooling and i was amazed at how hot that water could get 
on that solar array from the sunlight. One of the uh, researchers actually leaned up against the array accidentally and her lab coat caught on wow. fire. Hmm. Those, well, wow. we, we did some solar stuff with uh, vacuum tube collectors and uh, those vacuum tubes, so they're reflectorized vacuum and they use a heat pipe internally uh, so they have refrigeration in them and then uh, that refrigerant boils under pressure goes up to the top of the heat pipe where it plugs into a collector and then the heat's taken away but I just had a pipe laying on the ground maybe 15 minutes and went to pick it up by the uh, top of the heat pipe and branded my two fingers, my finger and thumb that I touched it with. Yeah, I'll tell you what, that it, and you know, Rich, that's a really good point because, you know, if you think about it, they could have easily used that um, square footage to put just your standard solar array on too to generate power. But I'm assuming that using what they did and using an absorption chiller was probably more economical than using whatever. What's a a 15% efficient solar panel to generate electricity to do whatever they wanted to do. So it's a cool application that can probably be used for a lot of places. Yeah, there were a number of uh, grad students that were, uh, that uh, wrote their thesis around that whole little system that I just No, it's impressive. I like it. That's a great parting story. It's something to think about. There's just the, I think the applications, if you get creative and you really think about what you can do with what you're, what you have, what you're using, what you've already used, what you've wasted, um, an absorption chiller can fill a gap pretty easily. So with that, I think we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this podcast up talking about absorption chillers. I think it was a great conversation. We covered a lot. Um, like I said, for you guys listening, I'll try to put a, a decent YouTube video of an animation of an absorption chiller going. So you have something to look at or Google it. You know, every photo, it looks the same to me. There's a whole lot of, there's bo- two boxes and a whole lot of pipes going in and out with different colors. So, um, you know, take a look at that. It's interesting. And I hope you enjoyed the podcast and, and learned something from this and tune in our next episode. We're going to, we're going to kind of keep this trend going, talking about mechanical equipment and trying to shed light on this. Cause as, as Rich said, and we all said, um, these play a huge role as a BMS part because you need to understand the equipment you're trying to control and operate systematically as well. So our next episode, we will be diving into boilers, which should be a good one as well. So tune in. Uh, thanks a lot for your time and thanks a lot for you guys' time. Have a great day.